This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Welcome, everyone, to yet another episode of Diagnosing the Aftermarket A to Z. I'm Matt Fonslow, and tonight I have the pleasure of welcoming two people that I've been on podcasts recently with. One, Jeff Barnes with uh, Shepard Automotive, and Zach McLean with Elite Automotive Solutions. Before we get rolling here, too quick, let me thank our sponsor, Napa Autotech Training. Are you tired of searching for trained technicians? If so, let Napa Autotech help you build a technician with their Build-A-Tech program. These three-day courses cover one of four topics, brakes, electrical, steering and suspension, or HVAC through a combination of classroom lecture, hands-on, and utilizing training mock-ups. Visit NapaAutotech.com. Well, thanks guys for joining me tonight. We're just kind of talking before this, and really I think I'm just going to turn it over to Jeff to get us rolling here. I met Zach at ASTE two and a half years ago. You're still friends with him? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was introduced to him by Keith Perkins. Um, he was hanging out with that group. Um, and so Zach and I had a few classes together and we just kind of ended up around each other most of the time uh, at that conference. One of the things he told me right before he left our final class was that he was leaving the industry and that he was fed up with it and he was going back to college and moving on. He was not the only one who uh, said something like that. My, my other tech that was with me had said that he met another technician that had told him that he was leaving the industry and he was fed up with it. And I thought he was talking about Zach and he said, no, 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 this was a, a totally different person. So um, that kind of hit me that I flew, you know, 1500 miles to the other side of the country to this conference. And so, and so did Zach, but we were there under totally different circumstances, I guess. And he's not the only one that has that outlook on this industry, but I fear that if more and more people show up to these events, um, because we are all friends and we are all interested in this, um, but they, they have this certain sour taste in their mouth of the industry and they can convince other people to give up and leave, you know, other technicians that may be showing up to one of these events for their first time that may be on the fence, you know, and kind of convince their boss to send them to something like this. And then they meet somebody like that and they say, you know what, he's right. I'm, I'm fed up. I'm done. Well, like somebody that's rah, rah, rah cheerleader can sometimes kind of go in the other direction uh, past reality to where you overlook a lot of the issues and just get really, you know, pumped up or passionate about what you're doing, at least in the short term, right? We, we all kind of know about seminar high when you go to a training conference and you come back just really charged up to go for it and uh, get back to cars and all that kind of an excitement. Somebody that's the opposite, like fed up, they kind of make you a little more cynical, a little more critical of what's going on and pulling you down probably further than reality as well, right? The reality is more in the middle, but I agree wholeheartedly that it kind of spreads around and it's not without merit, right? We're not talking about like a singular person in a very specific situation that's gotten uh, passion sucked out of them or just, it's not even passion, just the drive to do it anymore, right? Just, I got to get out of here. It's nationwide. Not everybody necessarily, but it's just now a nine to five, 
right? They're just, they're there to get, collect the paycheck. They know what they have to do, how hard they have to work to get the desired result and waiting for something else better to come along. I don't want to put Zach in a bad light. Everything that he says is true. Every bit of it. I don't, I've never heard any, any lie come out of his mouth. Um, and I think all of us have experienced the bad nature of this business in one form or another at, at one point or another. And all three of us on this podcast are probably about 10 years apart. So, I mean, as far as age range goes, you know, as far as our mentality, we're all about the same mentality wise, you know, for our age range, uh, energy wise and stuff too. But as far as the year range that we came into the industry, um, things have changed uh, a lot. Zach got in kind of at the worst time, I think, and just got his nose blooded, bloodied, you know, and I don't want to say he's out for vengeance, but uh, he can be <laughs> he can be pretty strong sometimes. So I'm, I'm kind of anxious to hear his story. I've tried to listen this short introduction. I really wanted to listen to understand more to listen more than listening to respond. And what Jeff said is absolutely true. Your words have power, right? I do believe that I've probably been a whiner. I've probably opened my mouth when I shouldn't have in the past, but it wasn't for no reason at all. It was all valid concerns and valid issues with the industry. However, I probably should think more about what weight my words have carried. Whenever I go to an event or I talk to a technician, and and I used to be an educator, so I played a direct role in influencing people as they progressed into the industry. I should have known better, I guess, as a a phrase to use. Be careful what I say, because no matter how I feel, I shouldn't tarnish the image that someone else has for this industry because there's a lot of positives going on. Don't I, I, I can't be negative. When I was kind of rattling that all off, it wasn't like so much aimed at you specifically at all or just anybody. If they're upset or cynical or whatever uh, with the profession or wh- where they're at, they can be a hundred percent honest for their situation. They're a hundred percent honest and accurate. But for somebody that they may be talking to at a um, trade show or a training class, whatever, that may not be exactly true for them. And it's not like pointing fingers or, or blaming or anything and not even warning people to be careful what you say. It's just kind of, a, I think, a awareness of if I'm sitting next to you telling you how great it is, just how awesome this profession is and how good it's been to me and all this stuff I've been able to do. That's not necessarily accurate of the entire profession, right? My experience, where I'm at, luck of the draw, career-wise at the shop or position at the shop or any of that. And the same goes for the other direction too, where it's like, I'm, I got to get out of this. I, You know what? That fleet job's looking really good about now. Or I think I'm just going to go drive truck, man. I can make more money and I think I'll just drive truck. And they're not wrong. Like for their specific situation, they're probably right it doesn't necessarily represent the profession as a whole. That's really all it was. Uh, It's not calling anyone uh, a liar or exaggerating or anything of that nature at all. All three of us have a valid point, but I, I never saw the perspective that Jeff had had. So I I think there's some value in this discussion, a, a lot of value, actually. I guess one example, I'm hoping to hear more about yours specifically, but I just caught this video on YouTube yeah, his name's Nick. I probably even shouldn't even try to say what his last name is, but I want to say it's like Nick Engley or something like that. Is it Nick Nikai? That could be it. 
but he starts out and these, his YouTube channels a few years old and he starts out, I think he's a Toyota technician, dealer tech. And he bounces around. Like he's at a Toyota dealer for a while. Then I think he goes to like BMW and he's back to Toyota. And then I think he went somewhere else. Well, I think within this last year, he's completely out of auto repair. He's at a fleet shop working on everything from light trucks and trailers to semis and trailers. He loves it. I think he misses cars, but a lot of the BS is gone. You know, like he's getting a good salary. He's getting paid all the time. He's not fighting for hours. He's not racing a clock. If he's got to go drive 45 minutes to pick up a a truck or trailer or both and drive it back, he gets paid the whole time. You know, I get it. Comparing that $10,000 vehicle in your bay versus that $100,000 or more semi that's a company vehicle, commercial account that that vehicle makes that company money and every minute it's sitting in your bay is costing them. They don't want you calling them with a price. They want you to call them when it's done. I get that difference, but we're going to hemorrhage talent. And I, we don't know if he was a really good tech or not. I'm not going to say he is or is, and he could have been phenomenal. We're hemorrhaging really good technicians to other entities that require just a fraction of their skill sets. I would agree with that statement. I think that the root core message that that Jeff really wanted to get to, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff, is when you are leaving, it's almost like you don't have to stand at the door and give you know your 99 theses and nail it to the door. You can leave, right? And if you're not part of the solution, you're only creating problems by continuing to spew negativity. And don't get me wrong, I, I think this industry is well-deserving of the criticism and, and some of the negative comments that it gets. But if you're like me and you're actively trying to find your way out for whatever reason, whether you dislike the industry or you have other career aspirations, there's no need to stir the pot or to drag everyone else down with you, so to speak. Am I hitting that core message, Jeff? Yes. This is so tough because I'm, I'm, I'm not just saying that about you. It's You're not the only one who I've had technicians that I've worked with who were in the same mindset and the same perspective i guess like you're you're telling me all this you know stuff that's gone on you know and i'm like well crap i've been dealing with that for like 12 13 14 years you know and it's better now i hate to be like you know how the older generation is just like you know well i you know what do they say you know i walked to school uphill both ways in the snow you know but we have i mean i don't know about you know, mad because you have a different prerogative, I guess. You came in to the industry, what, in the late 90s? That was kind of the, like the end of the heyday, I guess, from what most people told me. You know, I wasn't in it then, but you had that experience of it being good. Whereas when I came in, you know, of course, I, I'd spent six or seven years as a small engine tech first, and that was just horrible. And that's why I came to the auto industry and then went, oops. <laughs> Well, I think if you Google it, you might find a um, editorial in, I want to say, Motor Magazine. I think the editor at the time was John Lipen, and I had emailed him and talked to him on the phone, and I was ready to just bail. Like, I was ready to be done with the fixing cars because, I mean, I don't know, I don't want to exaggerate, but I suppose it was probably well over 10000 at the time, dollars of my own money invested in tools 
and I think I was working for the best independent shop in town at the time. I really do. The labor rate at the time, I think, was 65 an hour. It might have been 70. If I want to say it was 65. But I was making less per hour than I could have made at the Red Wing Shoe Factory. And that bothered me. That bothered me so bad because I could go work there and it wouldn't be hard at all. I'd probably bore myself to death. It would not be challenging. I would make more money per hour. I would have a really nice benefits package, health insurance, life insurance, short-term, long-term disability, uh, a retirement, 401k. It was like, what am I doing here? How stupid do I have to be to be doing this uh, for a living? I just remember structuring the question on how do I go to my boss and what can I do to help the shop do better so that I can do better? It's a short editorial. It's not like there's this lengthy response from him on what to do or or even all that much help on the phone. But yeah, it finally came down to kind of almost threatening to quit, getting a few pay bumps and scheduled pay bumps that finally at least got me over the freaking factory. I think there's other places I could have went and made more, maybe even some other shops that were paying on commission, but I would have been doing stuff I did not like to do this shop, I got to do what I like to do and stuff like that. But it's not like I got into this and right away it was just all sunshine and rainbows. There was many times where I was questioning my my sanity. Like how smart can I really be to keep doing this? And it's like, you're not that smart. (laughs) You just can't be that smart. You might be smart enough to fix this car. You're dumb enough to do this for a living. That's kind of what I was telling myself. I think we're all probably reflecting because as you were describing that, I was I was drawing parallels. Like I don't want to turn this into a you know an episode about my experience in the automotive industry, but I started my career in 2013, so this marks 10 years for me this year. And when I first entered the industry, I was gung ho, loved loved cars. Just all I wanted to do was was diagnose, repair, and maintain vehicles. And I started out in the heavy-duty diesel industry, and then I went back to automotive, which I had a formal education in. And roughly the five-year mark, you know, I was pretty disillusioned, I guess, would be a good, good term. And I had an opportunity to go teach. I left the repair industry, you know, day-to-day, even though I didn't leave the automotive industry as a whole. And I guess I could say I saw the other side, right? As you were describing the, the boot factory example, you had a 401k, you had, you know, good pay. You had all these these things. And I experienced that. I mean, I, I didn't have amazing pay. I was a teacher, but I mean, I had amazing benefits. I had health insurance. I had those things that I had never, never experienced it. And I, I guess it kind of soured, soured me even more for the industry. It just, I was like, where was this when I was a tech? As I progressed through my career and, and I had to move jobs for my wife and her career, I just couldn't see myself continuing in this industry as a, as a technician. You know, I couldn't see myself in a bay. And I, I just got more bitter, more upset. Like, why did I waste my time? I felt like it was a waste of my career. Like, I had set myself back. I feel a lot of those same emotions or descriptions that you were giving about the boot factory example. I, I think I, I had a similar experience. Yeah, and it, it really took... I don't know if the skill gap is quite the right terminology, but certainly the shrinking of the talent pool to start driving things up. You know, now being a tech is much better than it was. I mean, at least for me, even 10, 15 years ago, 
it's way better now. I'm going to play devil's advocate here. I don't think there's a shrinking of the the talent. I think the what used to be the talent was already very, very, very small. Cars were just easier to work on. Those guys were not the talent. If they'd have stayed, they would not be the talent right now. I, I think the talent right now is the young guys that understand uh, computers and cell phones and you know i mean i can use one but these guys that are i don't know what's a what's a raspberry pi you know what i mean like that's a that's a computer you know i've never dealt with all that these guys are are doing some crazy stuff you know i hate to be that way but i kind of feel like as a diagnostician when i came in to the industry what would have been considered the smart guys around town they were knowledgeable they had seen everything they could remember everything and they got out not because they were old, but a lot of them got out because they didn't want to work on the new cars. So if they were truly talent, they would still be around. I think if, if they were physically able for 98 years, the Napa name has meant quality parts and service. It also reflects top quality training programs to help you build a more successful vehicle repair business. No doubt the technician shortage is impacting everyone but you're not facing this battle alone. Napa has the solution by making Napa AutoTech training available near you. Napa AutoTech provides automotive aftermarket technicians career development opportunities through structured, disciplined, measured, and high-quality technical instruction, no matter the technician or service advisor skill level. This instruction enhances understanding of vehicle systems, increases first-time repair capability, and overall customer satisfaction. It also prepares technicians to become ASE certified. It's a fact. Technicians who receive training to improve their knowledge and skills have a higher sense of job satisfaction. This reduces technician turnover and increases productivity, directly improving a shop's profitability. It is vital to the success of a shop's business that today's technicians are equipped to diagnose and repair today's complex vehicles. With our ever-changing technology, the technician's knowledge and skills need to be updated and refreshed on a regular basis. As you labor over the decision of whether to send your techs to get their skills sharpened, keep in mind, Napa Auto Tech Training is an investment, not an expense, and it's available to all. Much of Napa Auto Tech's training is offered in more than one format to accommodate varieties of learning styles and training preferences so each person can maximize their learning. Whether you're more of a hands-on person or enjoy learning at your own pace, Napa Auto Tech is here to provide you with the training you need in the format that works best for you. To learn more about what Napa Auto Tech offers, contact NapaAutoTech.com. I would say I come from a small sample size and the ones that I know that got out were going to like municipalities, fleet services, farm implement, stuff like that, where they're just kind of a fraction of what they used to do. In some cases, more. So if a lot of them, they went and worked for like the county or the city. They're not working on just vehicles anymore. They're working on the snow plows and lawnmowers, whatever. But the flat rate portion or the production stuff is kind of off to the wayside. It's, you know, of course they want to get stuff done, but it's not quite the same pressure. It was more like, let's get it done right. That's the stuff I got to see more of. I'm trying to think of people that could really go early on, you know, when I started versus as the cars started getting more and more complex, when we started getting more multiplexing and OBD2 was really showing up uh, in the bays. 
how many would leave because they just like they couldn't do it anymore and i offhand i can't think of any i'm not saying there isn't any but offhand i can't think of any uh, i've worked with a lot of different you know service advisors and and stuff over the years and they've all told me that you know i worked at this place or worked at this dealership and when they brought in uh digital inspections on a tablet like you know anybody who was over the age of 50 just walked <laughs> and i'm like really and they're like yeah they say, i'm not doing that and then they just leave you know so maybe it's not even necessarily the the technology on the cars that drove those people away. And, I, and I'm not saying they were the top technicians, you know, but they certainly were, I mean, they would have had to have had experience, you know, at least being that age. I have spent this week getting my teeth kicked in by a 1998 Ford Escort. So I will agree cars are much more difficult in the big picture, grand scheme of things, but nightmares have existed since the automotive industry became a thing. I'm sure there's guys that got their butt kicked by Model T's. So, I mean, I, I don't know for sure, but I can only assume. To get back to that point that you had made to me, because this is just burning me up on the inside. Whenever I go to a training event, and you know what? I'm leaving the industry and you've actually given me a hard time. What are you, what are you doing at these events? I thought you were leaving. I really need to think carefully about what I say, how I say things when I interact with their technicians, because we all socialize. We're all in groups. We all meet people. And when we go to these events, what do we all do? We congregate. We share war stories. We share our thoughts on the industry. All it takes is one guy to plant the seed into that technician that's on the fence, and he's gone. I really don't have a dog in that fight, per se, right? I'm just the, just a guy sharing my thoughts, but the power that I hold to influence those technicians of today and even potentially them to influence technicians that might grow into it in the future, I think that's the danger, right? I, I think that's what's been eating me up. Sorry if I derailed us, but that had just that stuck in the back of my head. I had to get it out. I'm trying to think about what it would be like for you if you'd have hung on for another I don't know, two or three years. If you'd switch shops enough, I've only worked at two automotive shops. Now, I've worked at them multiple times. I haven't greased the wheels on my toolboxes in 10 years, you know, so I don't have a lot of perspective on doing that. But from a lot of guys that I've talked to, they say you just keep changing shops until you find a good one. And I know about where you live and I know about the shops around that area and stuff too. Um, and so, you know, sometimes you may have to pack up and move. And I know that you've done that before. <laughs> so I, I'm just trying to think about where my turning point would have been. I mean, like right now, like I, I want to stay in the industry, but I might, I might shift what I do um, just because of um, stress and other factors on my body and stuff, because I, I just don't want to do the physical stuff anymore. I want to, I want to get out of it early enough to where I don't wreck my body so that I can enjoy the rest of my life. But I don't want to leave. I'm trying to think about the turning point for me when, so I, I guess I was about your age, 28. You know, like I've told you before, you know, like, I don't know if you've ever experienced it, but, but being a flat rate technician, um, trying to earn a living doing oil changes at 0.2 hours, uh, doing flat repairs at 0.2 hours and getting fed scraps, um, and getting three hours a day, uh, to get my five hours a day of flat rate hours done in between the oil changes was 
really difficult. Finally, it took me a long time. Um, I finally said, I'm just going to find another shop. And I didn't have to look far. It was literally the first place I called and the first place I interviewed. And that was it. I didn't interview anywhere else. I didn't apply anywhere else. So I lucked out. You know, Matt talks about chances and luck. You know, mine, mine is pure uh, luck. I don't know, like, if I, if I left right now, how difficult it would be to find another good shop. And so you giving up is not a bad thing. But as far as someone who's influential in this industry and someone that I rely on and someone that other technicians rely on for your uh, insight and knowledge and, and help and your energy, you got a lot of energy that I don't have. You know, I, I wished I wished you would have found what I found in the shop that I have now. You know, I've thought about it. My situation's a little unique. I actually graduated high school at the same time that I that got my associate's degree. I went into college and didn't go straight into industry until about a year or two later. Uh, I had some financial difficulties, couldn't continue my education in engineering. But I think had I never went and started down the path that I went, I wouldn't have wanted to to complete that education, right? Because that's that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to get my engineering degree. I think I might have found a home, right? The the longer I've been in industry, the more I calm down because I'm definitely wound up tight and I have a lot of of energy. <laughs> Sometimes probably not directed in the in the best directions, but I might have found that home. On the flip side of that coin, we talk about grease in the wheels. Toolboxes have wheels for a reason. How many times have you guys been told or heard the phrase job hopper? right? I've been in some Facebook pages and I'm sure I'm not well liked because I I share my opinion, but the constant discussion of how bad the applicant pool is or how can I hire someone? They've they've worked for 15 shops over the 15 years they've been employed. It's almost like a catch-22, right? Technicians might feel as though they're backed into a corner. You know, I can keep trying to shop for a shop or I can just get out and then if they went to another trade and they had 15 jobs or 15 years, that might reflect negatively on them. Maybe I have a, a odd perspective, but that's that's just a thought. I don't know what that means by job hopper. Like I've heard employers don't like when they see that you don't last for a year. You know, it's like you worked here for six months and then you worked here for two years and then you worked here for five years and then you worked there for another place for a year and they don't like that because they're, I don't know, they're worried about loyalty yet. You, the individual also have to look out for yourself and your family too, where just like interviewees, you're interviewing somebody to hire. I don't know how much I buy into like these interview processes and all that. I, I just, I don't know. I don't know if I buy into it. You can ask the right questions and give them a test or whatever personality tests or whatever, and then have an idea of what type of a person you're hiring and are they going to be a good fit? And it's like, they're going to put on their best show for you. And then you hire them. And then a month later, six months later, you're going to figure out who they really are, right? Their true colors are going to show. And I think the same thing for places that hire you, like it's, this is a great place to work. We take really good care of our people and, all this and that. And then in six months, you find out that that's not necessarily the case or the owner doesn't have your back the way he said he has your back, stuff like that. You know, when the writing's on the wall, what are you supposed to do? Well, I've only been here six months. I got to stick around for another 
gosh, you know, a year and a half. So it doesn't look bad on my resume. It's like, no, I'm going to get out and try to find that good shop. So I I don't know what that means. Job hopper. I'm, I'm sure there are people like that. That's part of learning too, right? You, sometimes you find out the grass isn't always greener, but then sometimes it is. When you're going out there looking, say you're that technician who's looking for the greener grass and the turning point for me, when I finally just drew the line, I had been flirting with the idea of either working for myself, going back to school, whatever the case may be. It was, I want to say it was August of 21, whenever my wife and I moved back to our home state from her job, we had to relocate for. And I was just very adamant about trying to find a job, stay, stay employed rather than go out on my own. I had fears of of self-employment and I went and found a shop. I was very, very slow and deliberate in how I interviewed them, so to speak. You know, I I told these people, I was like, Hey, look, I want to find somewhere I fit. I want to find somewhere I can enjoy to work. I'm not in a hurry. I want to make sure that this is the place for me. Right. And I even did like two days of, I went in and I worked side by side with them to try to get an idea of what, what their environment was like, what their processes were, how their employees felt. And they put on a great show. They, they talked to the talk and it just blew up in my face. And I'm sure there's three sides to every story, right? I made some, I made some mistakes whenever I I worked there and I'll be the first one to admit them and I own them. I I take my own advice. I look in a mirror when I'm looking for the problem, a lot of responsibility, it, it lies on my shoulders, but that was that breaking point. It seemed as though the grass was greener and it ended up, it just ended up being a disaster. So I guess that's double-edged, man. You, you, can, you can either find your home or you can be pushed over the edge. To be honest with you, I don't believe any shop or any interviewee is. They're going to embellish. And it's not just with shop owners, but I, I see it a lot with shop owners. Shop owners live in their own little world. It's, it's not that they're competitive. If you're not part of their business, you don't exist in their world. It's, it's, you know, you may be a vendor, but you're, you're submitting to them. You may be a customer, but you're submitting to them. You may be an employee, but you're submitting to them. This is their world. It's their baby. And if they don't get out of that bubble that they're in and don't see any other perspective, they think that they have the best pay plan. They, they think that they have the best shop and they don't believe that there's any other place that's better to go. And it could not be more wrong. And it's the same way with techs. For years, I didn't know any other techs. I just worked so much. When I got on Facebook, it wasn't for work. When I went home, it wasn't for work. It was turn that crap off. I think a lot of problems that we see with how technicians are treated is not intentional. It is learned actions that have in the past maybe worked um, and worked out for the shop for the better. Um, And if they don't get out of that bubble and learn anything different, then they're not going to do anything different. They're just going to do what they know, what's worked in the past. It's at the detriment of the industry. It's at the detriment of their employees. I don't want to say a lot of the the, the changes for the better are going to be on the shop owners, but you know what? They're the ones in control. Regardless if we're in a uh, technician shortage or not, they're still in control because if they just decide to go out of business, well, we don't have anywhere to work. And if we don't decide to go open shops and, and do things better ourselves, then we're kind of screwed. So 
you know, we rely on each other and we can kick and scream and get angry or we can start moving around looking for the better shops. The The shops are going to have to start getting rid of the bad guys that, you know, that, that need to go, that need to go do something else and give those spots to technicians like Zach. I think you said it best with the bubble. At some point, they're choosing to be in the bubble. And okay, now we're picking on shop owners and managers. You know, who, when I say managers, I'm talking about ones that have real clout, like they have some serious pull power enough to dictate what people are being paid, the power to change labor rates and matrix markups and all that. You know, not just the manager by title and maybe is in charge of some disciplinary type stuff and whatnot that we're picking on them a little bit for being in a bubble because at some point it's a choice. I'm agreeing with you in that it's not so like evil intentions or real selfish intentions on their part. It's no news is good news, but I'm not going to put much effort into looking into this. Like we feel like we pay our people really, really well. We take really good care of our employees without ever really diving into what is the cost of living in this area? What is the cost of living within a certain radius of our shop? If you live 15 minutes away, what does it really cost to buy a house? What What are the cars cost? What does food cost? Part of it is they probably don't want to know because it would be a very, very sobering day. Their wives have to work. Their husbands have to have to work. They would never make ends meet. We find ways of working around vehicles. We can't get this part. We can't get that part. We, you know, need to get this to work. Shop owners included, they'll find the way around. Like we'll work that out. We'll figure it out. We can take some of those same skills and put it towards the business. And it's like, okay, I'm potentially here underpaying my entire staff. 20% 20% just for BS numbers. What do we got to do to bump that up? Like, you know, do I just bump the labor rate up? Maybe that's the answer, but like really studying, what does it take? And accepting that, wow, like all this time, I thought they were doing really good because, you know, they're doing better than I ever did. And I bought a house and I've lived in it for 30 years and I'm about ready to pay it off. And my house payments, $700 a month. It's a skewed idea. And then our employees have the same issue with their bubbles, right? We all have this. I mean, I guess I know I've talked about it before. It's egocentric bias and that's what it is. And it's something we have to fight. It's like an active fight against our worldviews, how we, how we see the world through our eyes. And we have to be aware of that actively. I will say that I've never been happy with my compensation when I've been in the the repair side of the industry. I mean, now as a, as an owner, I mean, my compensation's what I go out there and bust my tail to earn. So I can't complain if I didn't make enough, it's because I didn't work hard enough and didn't do a good enough job. But <sighs> compensation is definitely something that's lagged in our industry, at least in my opinion. And the two different pay systems that you've ran into, at least I've run into, have either been straight hourly or pure flat rate. And I was never satisfied in either situation. When I worked hourly, there was a lot of guys that would go stand by the door and smoke cigarettes and whine and moan and complain. And, you know, they still get paid the same hourly rate. And then the guy who's busting his tail, head down, nose to the grindstone, he's getting paid the the same amount. And that always kind of irked me. And, And on the same pay plan, when it was busy in the summer and we were busting it, trying to get trucks out or trying to, you know, fix cars, 
you get paid the same amount, regardless of how hard you work, how efficient you are, how many cars go out the door or trucks. It never sat well with me. And on the flat rate side of things, it was, why am I, you know, doing a free inspection, which let's, let's please not go down the inspection road. I, I don't want to, <laughs> that's a deep, that's a deep one. Um, I've changed my perspective on that as well, but I would get very upset by why are we doing these things for free? I'm only compensated for labor ops, things of that nature. And you get very defensive of tickets and it, it breeds this competition or division in the shop. Again, it's attitude based. You know, if you have the right attitude, I truly think you can succeed on flat rate, but neither made me happy. You know what I mean? I I never felt like I was being compensated for the effort that I produced or the effort that I, I put out. I was either paid a flat amount or, you know, got whatever I got, you know, good luck, warranty, engine job, have fun. Like I know certain techs can make a really, really good living on flat rate in a really good system. And I don't know how common it is anymore. I mean, I think at the dealer level, it's super common, but in the independent world, I don't know many shops that are pure flat rate. I would say um, 90% of them in Oklahoma City are flat rate. Really? That many? Wow. Oh, yeah. You know why? Because the shop owners don't know any better. In their mind, they can't put the puzzle together on how to pay someone hourly or salary. They can't do it. It is This is how we pay. And, it, and a lot of reason is because they don't do the books. They don't do the numbers around here. They're grease monkeys, you know? I mean, and they, they own a business. They don't want to do the book work. You know, they don't want to do the numbers. They could give a crap, you know? We just put them on flat rate. We have the constant flow of cars coming in. If we need more money, we just turn more cars. You know, I've heard it before where if you pay a tech too much per hour, they'll just slow down and it couldn't be more wrong. But I've heard that there's a there's a balance, you know, well, if you, you know, if you pay them, you need to see how many hours you need them to flag and then you need to target what they should make. That's just such a backwards thinking. It's a control thing. I don't want to shame people for the things that they've done in the past and the way that they run their business or the way that they do this job, be in this industry or anything like that. I mean, he's told me before, you know, doing oil changes for basically $4 an oil change. And he's going, well, F that, you know, that's stupid. I, I wouldn't do that, you know, and, and just, and I'm going, come on, man, you know, <laughs> don't make me feel that bad about it. Like this was 10 years ago, the fix for everything in our industry. It's not the, the salary's not the fix. I, the only thing I can say is, education is going to be the fix. It's the fix for actually pretty much everything in the world. You know, our brains can comprehend a lot. Our hands, our body can do a lot. We can work really, really hard. If we spend that energy and we work on the wrong things, um, we don't direct our energy in the right way, we'll never get any better. And so I believe that education will be the fix for our industry. Um, I mean, I think it's going to be kind of a requirement, but that will lift so many shops out of this. I don't know what we would call it right now, a slump. You know, I wish it would have happened sooner. 
we've got such an uphill battle and how do I reach these other shops if I'm not working for them? You know, I have to get in the ear of their technician. I'm not going to get in the ear of their owner. That is not going to happen. They're not going to listen to me. But right now they will listen to their technician because they're going to go, oh, crap. Yeah. You know, I probably better listen to them because uh, <laughs> it might leave. Yeah. That's the thing with a lot of the podcasts are profession wide, whichever one you want to call out is after a while, it seems like it's a lot of preaching to the choir. You know, a lot of people listening to this, they, they already know, you know, that we got to have the material out there. So that we, we got to talk about this stuff. It's got to be out there in the ether. So it's accessible by those that don't know. But that's how do we reach the ones that don't? Not just the podcasts. It's the training conferences, the networking conferences that you see most of the same people time and time again. And like I think Vision this year, some numbers I heard, I thought they said something like a thousand new attendees. And it's not to diminish anything. It's not to take anything away from Vision or any conference. A thousand seems like a lot, but in the grand scheme of things, it's nothing, right? If the conference was attended by 5,000 technicians, what percentage of the entire profession population? It's minuscule. How do we get all the others involved? Uh, another sign of it is uh, involvement with uh, like ASE and the uh, the mobile app and reading the comments on some of the questions. Like there's a question that involves a pressure waveform. And the mobile app, the aim isn't so much the discriminating versus knowledgeable and less knowledgeable. It's really about maintaining or increasing your uh, education level. And learning about these new things. Like, so you're getting a lot of people responding, the comments, like, who tests like this? I've never seen this before in my life. Who, this is not real world. That's a lot of the shops, a lot of the technicians out there. They, they have never heard of in cylinder pressure transducer or just a pressure transducer. They probably don't even use vacuum gauges, right? That's a lot of what's out there. And it's not like trying to run us down, but that's, that's kind of the state of things. How do you reach those shops? How do you get to them? How do they open up one of those trade magazines? How do they listen to one of these podcasts? How do they end up knowing about vision? I think Karm was talking about, he met somebody that their shop is like five minutes away from the, the Sheridan where vision is held. This is the first year they ever went because this is the first year they've ever heard of it. It's unbelievable. I mean, I live in Northwest Arkansas. I jokingly tell people I live in Walmart, right? Because I live 30 minutes from the, the corporate headquarters in Bentonville. But there is one shop in my area, and it's actually two locations, but one shop that went this past year. And there was only two shops that I'm aware of in my area. And when I speak geographically, I mean about a 30 by 30 mile radius around where I live. This is a fairly large area for my state. I mean, there's a few hundred thousand people in this area. There's a lot of repair shops because I serve a lot of them. That's sad, like for our industry. And I've tried to spread the word. Whenever I go to a shop and, you know, perform a module programming event or do diagnosis or anything like that, techs come and talk to me. I mean, they just, they walk up to me. Hey man, how are you doing? You know, oh, check out this car I was working on. It's kicked my butt. Any ideas? And we just, we converse and I'm like, hey man, have you been to vision? Like typically training will come up because they'll say, how did you learn this or learn that? And I, I tell them about vision and they still don't attend. It's three hours away. 
from where I live. It's it's inexcusable. And I'm not trying to put anyone on trial. I mean, it just blows my mind. It's sad to see the state that our, our industry's in. And as much as I have negative to say about this industry, it's it's done a lot for me. It's allowing me to pay for my education without getting into debt. So, I mean, th- there's a lot of good things to say about this industry. And, and I have been the voice of much negativity and I, I'm probably not going to stop. But I think we need to change our attitudes as an industry, right? And try to be more positive, less negative, try to be seekers of information. The problem is, is how do we change those attitudes outside of our echo chamber? Because realistically, the people that are going to listen to this, the, the people who talk to each other at Vision, we're the same guys. It's so difficult. That, that's the million dollar question. Six months ago, I was picking up parts at the, the local warehouse here and uh, a shop owner, she stopped me and she said, hey, you work for so-and-so. And she said, uh, we're switching over to one of the major uh, shop management systems and you're using it, you know, can I ask you some questions about it? And I'm like, yeah, sure. We've been using it for a little over a year. And she asked me how to hide cash payments, you know, and I'm like, okay, well, I, uh, I don't deal with the money. Um, <laughs> and so I was like, but you know, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of free training on this, this certain, you know, shop management system. Before she walked off, I said, hey, let me ask you a question. I said, are you guys going to any training? What do your technicians do? And she said, oh, you know, just the, the if they're having Thursday night trainings or whatever. And I said, okay, let me stop you there. When is your, you know, when is your training conference? And she told me, and I said, that's about the time that vision's happening. And she said, well, what's vision? And I said, well, it's a, you know, it's a big, big conference. It's five hours away. You know, if you guys are going, why don't you just shut the shop down and send your texts? I don't think they did. I, I don't know. I, and that may be the technician's choice, you know, but I looked heavily when I was at, when I was in Kansas city this last, you know, couple months ago, I, I looked heavily. Of course, Keith and his guys were there. I think there may have been one other shop from Tulsa that was there. Aaron Woods, um, he's out of Stillwater. Hit him and his shop was there. Otherwise, I didn't see any other Oklahomans there. There's such a massive disconnect, right? You know, there's nothing bad with management training. Uh, I took some management training last vision, not, not the one in 23, but uh, 22, I took some management classes and it opened my eyes. I never had perspective related to the front of the house, so to speak, or the, you know, the counter side of the business. And when I opened my, my own business and started to deal with customers, whether it be a shop or a retail customer, I was blown away. Like I always, oh, I'm, I'm, I do everything. If it wasn't for me, this business wouldn't run, right? And I had my entire perspective shattered in front of my eyes. And the same is also true in the other direction. The the the, the people in the front of the house, they think that without them, nothing's going to happen. And it, 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 we're both right, but we refuse to see the critical role that each of us have and try to understand how to work together as a team. I cannot count how many times the service rider would storm up angry, throw an RO on a toolbox and the same be true with a technician. They would get mad. My parts aren't here. Get this thing out of here. And we fought. There's no teamwork. It's full of anger and apathy. We all hate each other and we just don't care. And we're back to that nine to five mentality. It really bothers me that it's that way in this industry. I get a, a few messages from time to time about similar situations and trying to adjust their pay plans. And I don't know that I have the answer. I really don't. The pay plan we've been going with 
I feel like people like it is that base hourly rate. You're punched in, you're getting paid. I don't want to blow it out of proportion that it's like so much money, but it's not a little bit either. You know, it's not like low balling you. If you didn't do anything but clean shop for 40 hours, you know, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have enough money to pay for anything. I don't, it's not like that, but I don't want to imply that it's so much that you're good to go either because on top of that, we have a kind of a profit sharing setup where the shop has a monthly nut. We have obligations in that this is what pays for everything. At the end of it, there's zero dollars left. All our bills are paid, all our base salaries and all that. And then after that, employees get a piece of that. And it's all based on the percentage of it is based on, you know, time and skills or whatever. Like what are you what do you bring to the table? So it adjusts that way. But the idea is is every little thing you can do and every big thing you can do that incurs ethical profit for the repair shop benefits you and everyone. So everyone needs to embrace this and think about this. That's maybe its biggest drawback is it's a big picture to consider that there's a reward for you're out to lunch and you overhear somebody talking about their car problems and you go over and introduce yourself and hand them a card and maybe build up a rapport and some confidence that they call and bring their car down to the shop. That's increasing car counts. That's increasing average uh, repair order. Like anything that results in ethical profit for the shop benefits everybody. It feels like we have a good team thing going. Like there's no repercussions for you or, or little repercussions, at least directly for putting down what you're doing and going to help out a coworker. That competition isn't really there. So I don't know if that's the answer by any means, but it, it seems to have solved a lot of stuff with us. People feeling like they're bringing more and, and doing more than what uh, just gets reflected in their hourly rates. The owner likes it because I think initially he would really smile writing out those checks, commission checks, if you will, or, or profit sharing checks. The reality is, is the bigger those checks get, the more money the shop made anyways. He's writing out big checks for everybody the beginning of the next month, the following month. That means the shop did really, really well. It's not necessarily on the hook for it. Like the shop has to do well for this to happen. And if everyone works together to keep building that, their checks keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Like there's no, you know, I'm, I'm sure there is an actual ceiling. We're not there yet. We got a lot of uh, leeway to, for everyone to do quite a bit better and better and better without actual permanent uh, pay increases, which they still get. I don't want to imply that that stopped either. You guys have raises? What, a raise? <laughs> But you know what the toughest part of that is? You know who the pivot point is on that? The owner. It doesn't matter what the employees do. It matters what the owner does in the end. Because you can make a shop a lot of money and they can squander all of it away. That was a big discussion before we put this into place because kind of my creation, but that was my big concern is just because you decided that you're going to go out and buy a new uh, forklift or you're going to go give yourself a nice big bonus. That doesn't come out of this. That's not in the spirit of this. We'll just say for a a BS number, the monthly nut is $50,000. We have to profit $50,000 just to break even. 
That's no bonuses, no commissions, no nothing. That's base salaries and all the bills the shop has and regular bills, not you up and decided we needed a new, you know, the shop was going to get a new toolbox. That's different. So now we take, it's like 30, 35% and divide it amongst the employees. The rest is for the shop. If you want to, as the owner, you want to give yourself a big bonus. It comes out of the 65%. If you decide to get the four wheeler fixed up or, you know, extensions made for the forklift that comes out of the 65%. It's a little bit of a buffer there, but it, like you said, they still have most of the power. I love that concept, the, the system that you described, because it took the good from both systems that I've experienced and eliminated all the bad, right? So instead of, hey, John, I'm, I'm holding this transmission up. I can't get this bolt started. Hopefully you're, you're using the correct you know, safety equipment and stuff. But if someone's in a bind, you're not going to say, well, too bad. I'm, I'm trying to turn this three-tenths oil change out the door. I can't help you. And it also discourages that guy that stands by the door and smokes cigarettes and wines. Everyone's holding each other accountable. The entire shop lives or dies as a team, right? They all succeed or fail as a team. Shop owners love to say this phrase, at least the ones I've spoken to, is skin in the game, right? That's all the flat rate, hardcore, flat rate's the best. Skin in the game is their favorite phrase. You have that with that pay system, but there's no fear of starving. You know, you're, you're not going to get your hourly rate and, you know, go on a cruise and buy your next house, just clocking in and clocking out, but you're not going to starve. I really like that idea. I think that pay system is a great, great concept. Yeah. To me, the flat rate thing is two reasons that gets put into place. One, motivation. Now the ownership or management doesn't have to try to motivate people. And two, they set their um, desired gross profit on labor and that's it. That's what it is. If I flat rate everybody and I want 70% gross profit on labor, that's what it is. It, It doesn't deviate. Devil's Advocate again. Uh, Five years ago, I quit flat rate. And this last year, I finally hit the number on a salary plus a bonus system that I was making five years ago. And you want to know why? Because I'm bonused off of what the other technicians do. And they're not motivated. I like the group bonus thing. You could hold each other accountable. But at the same time, I'll be honest with you. I could leave my shop... I could attenuate my skills down to a level of a flat rate tech and I could make more money. That is very, very tempting. <laughs> so I also view flat rate as evil. Okay. And in, in one of two ways, the root of all evil is greed, you know, money, right? Love of money. Yep. In my past on flat rate, if you give me the ability to run free like that, I'm like a dog, you know, I just eat so much food, I die. I'll take on more than I can and I'll push myself and I have in the past. I say flat rate is a weapon, okay? It's a weapon. You can use it to motivate your employees. You can use it to not have to pay your employees when times are slow or when there's a car that came back, you know, let's just back flag or whatever, okay? But The reason why a lot of guys don't want to leave flat rate is because, and like one of me and Zach's friends um, has has told us before, the the smartest thing he ever heard in his career was to leave his scan tool in the trunk of his car. He'll make more money. 
I struggle with it because it's it's an addiction and and I've dealt with addiction in my life before. So, you know, I'm going I can work 6 days a week and I did. I can work 14 hours a day, 16 hours a day and I did. And something I'm having trouble getting over uh was the the week that my my mother died. Um she died on a cruise ship and so it was going to be 4 or 5 days before they hit land again before we could have a funeral and I worked and I was given 30 hours for one day between two trucks. I, I should have just said no. I don't know what the owner's intentions were. If he was just trying to keep me busy or if he was wanting the money or what. But I did it. It bothers me to this day. That, that has changed me because I, I've always been the... I always show up to work. You know, why are these guys sick and they're 10 years younger than me? I always get my hours done. I don't leave on time, you know. And... That harmed me. Um, that harmed my family, my marriage, my body, everything. And so it is a true struggle because I do want to make more money. I, I do want to be more uh, what I consider successful. I know you're saying you don't see a lot of it. You didn't think that there was a lot of shops still on flat rate. But, man, I, I'm telling you, it is big. All I got to go by is around what I see around here. And, you know, again, there's maybe 20 shops. I think think the dealers so we have three dealers i think they are flat rate i don't know any indie shops around here that are on flat rate they're all hourly maybe some hourly with some commissions i just don't know any so yeah i'm kind of stunned and and saddened a little bit that there is so many flat pure flat rate shops still out there it's insane to me it's still insane to me how do you convince a shop it took me some convincing. In fact, to get my pay plan that I have now, it took me leaving for a couple months and coming back to get it. How do you convince shops that they need a technician like Zach and they need to pay him? How do we keep these guys? How, how do we keep them in? And, and I almost think it's like a drug to some guys, you know, like it, it really is like you see how much you can make this week, you know? The other issue with that is, you know, we chase people out of the profession or we make them go into business for themselves and then there are competition and that kind of starts diluting things where now there's more bays per car than um, there would have been if they didn't go out into business for themselves. And that's its own set of issues. Like you're kind of diluting the pie, if you will, dividing it up into more pieces by taking good people and making it so they're so disgruntled that it's like, well, fine, I still want to work on cars, so I guess I have to go into business for myself. And then, you know, not that you want to stifle entrepreneurs and stuff like that, but in a way, it's somewhat counterproductive as well. And then they might fall into the same trap, not that uh, Zach would by any means, but... I've talked about getting an employee. I'm starting to get busy to the point now where I could truly benefit from having someone work for me. There's two things that are preventing me from doing that. One, I'm going to sound like a shop owner and it makes me sick to my stomach that I'm about to say this. Like I don't even want to go look in the mirror after I say this out loud, but there's no talent. And I say that and I follow up directly after that by saying, because this industry has chosen to continue the same behaviors that it's continued since as long as I've been in it, we have driven the people away. And the second part of it, I could not produce enough profit to pay what I consider an ethical wage 
that the value that that employee would bring should be worth. I'm not going to say deserves or, you know, fair, none of those words. I'm merely speaking from economic terms. The value that that employee should bring, I could not generate enough profit to pay them what the value of their labor is. Those are things that have stopped me from employing someone because I, I do not want to be an ESO, an evil shop owner, right? I, I refuse to be the thing that I hated. Since we're on the topic of flat rate, I really hate to have that flat rate discussion because I've got my own opinions. We could have 18 episodes on flat rate alone, but my wife is an accountant and she has worked in the, the corporate side of accounting and she currently works in a CPA firm doing audits. So she goes around and audits businesses, tries to help keep them in compliance for taxes and, and things of that nature. But the way that they bill their customers is nearly identical to the way that we bill our customers on flat rate, right? X job takes X number of hours. And there's some there's some variability, but they bill by the job. Does my wife get paid flat? Is my wife coming in? Oh yeah, you know, I'm going to turn eight hours today, but it's only going to take me six. No, my wife goes to work. She gets paid her salary. She has benefits. I have health insurance because my wife's employed because I'm, I'm self-employed. I couldn't afford to go out and buy it on my own. Any shop owner or any person that operates a business that pays flat rate that says, well, we can't do it any other way, um, you're wrong. There's no debating. There's no arguments. Other industries, they perform services that bill identically to the way we bill. They just charge what they're worth. We don't. And they pay their employees. I really, really appreciate you guys coming on and talking about this. And I think there's more to discuss. I would love to have a part two. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, if you have any ideas for future episodes or want to be on the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. I'm pretty easy to find on social media. Otherwise, you can email me at mattfonslopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to Napa Autotech Training for sponsoring this podcast. And thank you to the Aftermarket Radio Network for making this all possible. So until next time, take care. You've been listening to Matt Fonslow, diagnosing the aftermarket A to Z on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Matt on your favorite listening app. He's very interested in what you have to say. Let him know what you'd like him to cover and come on the show. Matt is all for advancing the aftermarket. Find Matt Fonslow on social media and connect or on aftermarketradionetwork.com.